What's up, producers, and welcome back to the Sound.Academy podcast. It's a show where I, Stephen Bockrich, interview successful artists, engineers, and industry people to help you learn actionable strategies and techniques you can use in your own music. In this episode, I speak with Tom Frampton of Mastering the Mix. Tom is an experienced producer, mixing and mastering engineer, and plugin designer. He's mastered tracks for some of the biggest artists in the music industry, and his next level plugins are used in studios around the world. Tom has built a career around helping producers get better sounding mixes, so it should be no surprise that he's very familiar with the challenges producers face today. In this episode, we discuss everything from time management tips for busy producers, how to optimize your workflow in the studio, common mixing and mastering mistakes made by producers, how to set up a professional sounding studio on almost any budget, and even his thoughts on a loudness war and how that's changing with the emergence of platforms like Spotify. Additionally, Tom gives us an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at his mixing and mastering workflow in the studio. He mixes and masters a track start to finish, showing us how he initially analyzes the track, how he identifies problematic frequencies in the mix, how he measures loudness, and so much more. This sneak peek at the workflow of a world-class engineer is definitely not something you want to miss, so if you're simply listening to the audio on iTunes or SoundCloud, definitely head over to YouTube and check out our channel and watch Tom work because there is a lot you can learn from his mixing and mastering workflow. Now lastly, we are thrilled to announce our ultimate plugin giveaway with Mastering in the Mix. One lucky producer will win a free copy of every Mastering in the Mix plugin, including Levels, Reference, and Expose, a $165 value. We've included a bunch of different ways to enter to really help you guys maximize your chances of winning. All the details can be found on this week's show notes at sound.academy blog. The winner will be randomly chosen on August 30th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So do your best to get in all your entries before that time. And hey, maybe you'll be the lucky winner. Now, before we get to this week's show, here's a quick word from this week's sponsor. If you're anything like me, you probably struggle to find interesting and unique samples to use in your music. Even when you do find a sample pack that looks promising, you'll likely end up with only a couple sounds that you'll actually use and a ton of samples you'll never touch again. Well, that's why I use Splice Sounds. Discovering new sounds on Splice is so easy, and with a catalog of more than 2 million sounds to choose from, you're guaranteed to find something you like no matter what genre you produce. Browse by genre, instrument, most popular, and even search for that specific didgeridoo sample you've been looking for for months. Once you find a few sounds you like, you can add them to a new repack or a curated playlist of your favorite samples and download them to be used right in your DAW. Splice is offering listeners of this show a free month of Splice Sounds when you sign up and use promo code Sound Academy. This is an amazing offer, and I definitely recommend all the producers out there check it out and explore what Splice has to offer. To get started, view this week's show notes where we've included a special sign up link for listeners of this show. Welcome back to the Sound.Academy podcast. Today I am joined by Tom Frampton of Mastering in the Mix. Tom, how's it going, man? Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, Tom, to kick it off, for those who might not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay, I'm Tom Frampton. I'm the director of Mastering the Mix. We're based in London and we create plugins for music producers. That's us in a nutshell. Very simplified. I like it. Well, I am a huge fan of your plugins, levels, reference, expose, and they're used by almost every producer I know. Oh, that's very kind. We're still growing and we've got some, uh, some, some more fun tools to put out there, but we're having a great time so far. 
So one of the things I'm curious about is in addition to running Mastering in the Mix and managing this company that creates plugins used by producers all around the world, you also are a mixing and mastering engineer and have credits with some of the biggest artists in the music industry, Tiesto, just to name one. So I imagine you must be very efficient with your time and how you manage your schedule. So do you have any practices or rituals you follow that allow you to be so efficient? Yeah, totally. That's um, that's a really big one because there's there's a few things to juggle, uh, especially when you've got lots of different uh, projects on the go and managing the software side as well. We're, we're a small team here doing the software stuff, so we have to be as efficient as possible. So yeah, we have lots of systems in place for things like support and um, you know responding to customers, and almost everything is automated. So if you know if someone wants a plugin, they get it all immediately. Um, all the accounting is is automated. We just automate as much as we possibly can. And uh, with regards to, to mixing and mastering, it's, a, it's I've had to fine tune how I actually approach each track to make sure that I can, you know, I, I, it used to take me maybe four hours to mix a track and now it maybe takes me one hour because I want to try and crash out, smash out as many as I possibly can um, without um, without compromising on the quality. So yeah, there's a few things like, for example, creating templates, creating um, my personal presets and, and, and channels, um, you know, uh, plug-in channels and stuff just to make sure that I can open things really quickly and um, yeah, keep things flowing as quickly as possible. Interesting. So it sounds like you put some systems in place that allow you to optimize your workflow when you are in the studio and instead of getting stuck on the mundane things like setting up your template, you're allowing yourself to instead focus that time and energy on the actual act of mixing and mastering. Absolutely. And when I come across some kind of road hump that slows me down, I don't let it just pass. I try and I try and think, okay, that was a problem there. It's going to take me five minutes to put in a system that's going to save me hours in the future. So it's a case of like, constantly optimizing that workflow. So do you think that's something that's also applicable to producers and composers as well? Because I talk to a lot of producers in the community who when they go to start a new project or they're feeling inspired or something like that, they end up getting stuck spending the first 15 to 30 minutes just setting up their drum racks or just setting up their template so they have the right VSTs and instruments in there. I think it depends on if, if, you're, if you're a professional and you're doing this professionally or you want to do this professionally, then those systems are absolutely crucial. You know, I've got um, I've seen some of my friends progress from doing, you know, maybe one track a month to four tracks a week. And they can't do that without having these systems in place. Like project templates for me is an absolute must mm -hmm. to be able to so open it and have that momentum to, to, to like hit the ground running. You can save yourself just hours 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 just doing that yeah it's amazing so for the producers listening right now who hear that and think to themselves oh my god that's me i'm getting stuck at the beginning of every project how do you suggest they start going about actually analyzing their workflow and figuring out how to set up a template and workflow that works for them so i would suggest looking at them most recent successful project that they had like where they love the instrumentation they love the mix all those kind of things and look at what they had done so for example it might be a particular bass sound or particular uh, drum sounds that they used in that project and and start creating and saving those as, as as presets one thing that i do is there's a plugin from from plugin boutique called big kick 
and it allows me when I'm when I'm actually producing a, a track, I do some remixing as, as well. When I'm producing a track, I want to be able to get the perfect snare. So what I do is I create the MIDI track, and then it this triggers my various samples. So I can whilst I'm listening to the track, I can change the snare with every single snare beat and wait until I find the one that is absolutely perfect for the track. Uh, my, my previous workflow was to bring in hundreds of different, well, you know, maybe dozens of different snare sounds and, and delete the ones that I did and didn't want, all that kind of stuff. It was just an absolute, it was a nightmare. It was just so time consuming. And this is one of those things, which is one of those systems that I put in place that has, that has dramatically decreased the amount of time it takes me to find the perfect sound. So building off that workflow piece, one of the biggest challenges I hear producers run into is how they actually go about making a track. Oftentimes they'll be able to pretty easily start this four bar, eight bar loop, maybe even a 16 bar loop, but very quickly they seem to almost run out of creative ideas or they don't know how to turn that loop into a full track or in the worst case scenario, they just get sick of the loop that they, you know, a couple hours ago they'd really liked. So. Why do you think this is, and what do you think producers can do to overcome it? That's a really, really, it's a really important question, because I think it's one of the biggest struggles. I think that producers don't know what they need to be doing next. You know, they say, right, I've got my kick, I've got my bass, oh, that's really cool, so what's next? I like to think of it as trying to fill in the gaps. So if I've got, you know, my kick and, and my bass happening, and, and the low end is really great, then naturally, I want to try and fill in the gap. So I don't want to choose another bass. I don't want to add more drums. I want to add maybe a synth or a vocal or a guitar until I have this rich texture of different elements that come together. And it's it's a tough one because it's like when when do you know when to stop filling the speakers and you know when less is more all those kind of things. So it, it, it is a tough one, but the key is just to keep making lots and lots of tracks until you understand what the next move is in the process. And the best way, if you haven't made lots of tracks, the best way to do that is to invest in educational material because they can really help and it will save you so much time. Like, don't sit on that. Like, just just go ahead and, and, and invest in yourself. I did it and it was, it was a real time saver for me and a, crea and, and a career creator for me. Can you talk a little bit about that, about when you decided to actually invest in education for yourself and how that changed the direction you followed in the music industry? I've always been very focused on music. I grew up as a drummer and I ran open mic nights and I was singing and playing guitar. So I was always focused on the kind of musical side of things. And then I went to university and I got a degree in, in um, drum performance and music production. From there, I went straight into a studio where I was... Uh, recording vocals and producing vocals and after a year of that I went and did my own thing so all all throughout that process I was constantly online looking at all the latest techniques I was subscribed to every single music blog there was at the time making sure I was getting as much information as possible and there became that I got to like this tipping point where I was starting to really understand things and it's kind of like you learn the rules and then break the rules or whatever, or you have more um, authority over the rules and you kind of come up with your own ideas. And that's when it changed from um, kind of a professional, like a, a professional kind of approach to it becoming a career and me having my own kind of impact, perhaps on other people, like with some of my products that have a slightly different approach than other people's products. Mm -hmm. So going off how your skill set developed, 
This is one of the topics I've seen you blog about, and it's a challenge I've run into myself, but a lot of producers, early on, they'll learn very quickly. There's so much knowledge, there's so much content out there related to music production, so it's easy to always be discovering new things, finding new techniques, and expanding your skill set. But as you become more and more experienced as a producer, sometimes that learning curve will start to slow down. You feel like you might not be learning and developing as quickly as you once were as a young producer. Why do you think this is and what can producers do to continue to learn and continue to develop and expand their skill set? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I found that with myself, you know, I was thinking, you know, my mixes aren't really improving. And that bothered me because, like you say, I'd had that that kind of increase in um, in skill for for a while. It kind of slowed down and plateaued, and I was like, "This needs to change. Otherwise, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm 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 27, and I don't want my career to peak at 27. That's really that's that's no one's, you know, goal." So I started recording my screen whilst I was mixing and mastering people's projects, and I would watch that back and see what I was doing and trying to analyze what I was doing. Because whilst I'm actually doing it, I'm in the zone, you know, I'm, I'm watching myself when I'm in the zone. And when you're in that kind of mixing mind frame, maybe you're not so analytical, maybe you're more creative. When you watch it back, you might say, ah, you know what? And especially if you watch it back with fresh ears, you might say, I don't think I made the, 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 the right move there or I would have done this differently. So it allows you to kind of like two different uh, perspectives on on your work. Um, another thing is coming out of, I, I, I'll spend some time now not working on someone's music. Because if I'm working on someone's music, there's a, there's a high pressure that I have to deliver great quality work. And I don't want to compromise that. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for growth. Whereas if I just play around with a project with some old stems that I might have and say, right, I'm going to get really creative here and see what I can come up with. What if I approach the bass in this crazy way um, and see how that sounds? In a, in that kind of like less pressure setting, I can come up with some more interesting ideas and I might learn from that. I might not, either way it's fun, but there's a really good way to kind of get yourself out of, out of your comfort zone and try new things. That's interesting. And that's one thing I've heard across the board is when a producer has uh, a deadline coming up for a remix competition, the track has to be done in a week. They can almost never find creative inspiration, but you know, if it's midnight, they're just hanging out and experimenting with processing this bass with a new plugin. All of a sudden, this track just starts to come together in no time. Yeah, it's important. So, I think it's good to be put under those pressurized situations as well, though, because that is the reality of a lot of uh, paid work in the industry is that you might have to deliver a remix in yesterday or you have someone's mix that is due in two days time or whatever. So, so yeah, it's important to be able to, to do both, I think. Yes. Absolutely. So what does that process actually look like for you? Say you get hit up by uh, a big time producer and they say, hey, Tom, we need this track mixed and mastered as soon as possible. How do you first allocate the time to actually go about mixing and mastering the track? And what does your mixing and mastering process actually look like? I know that's a bit of a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a loaded question. So... I have a fairly flexible schedule to allow for these kind of things. I need to be at my desk anyway for for software questions or queries or whatever they come in, you know, it's, it's happening all day. So I allow myself to be very flexible about that. 
So if someone comes to me and says, we need this by the end of the day, I look at my projects and I say, right, can any of these wait? Often they can. Often I have a lot of customers that will um, say, we need this by next week. No problem, no pressure. Great, take your time. Often they want me to take my time. They're like, don't, you know, maybe do it with fresh ears when you're, you know, when you have that time. Um, so so it's, it's often doable. And I don't often get two requests like that on the same day, which is nice. A lot of my clients are a bit more relaxed in that sense. So, but obviously people do want their mixes as quickly as possible. So it just, yeah, it depends on, on the client and the customer and, and how, how soon they need it. But generally I can deliver it. It's a case of like uh, giving yourself the space to be able to deal with those kind of requests. And it's like a lifestyle choice more than anything else. Yep, agreed. So once you do get into the studio, you have their stems loaded up in your DAW, how do you then actually go about mixing and mastering the track? Okay, so immediately I'll make sure that I'm really familiar with, with every single stem. Quickest way for me to do that is to go drums, bass, music, or, and, and, and group them like this, however many stems there are, and then color code them. So I can immediately see what's going on um, and some of the more important stems to me, like the kick and the snare and the bass, I might make them a different color to make sure that I pay more attention to them. So it's it that's like setting myself up and that can really keep me like, if, if, I, if I say, right, I'm gonna move on to the music now, right, all the stems are right there. So that's kind of the starting point. I like to get a mix to maybe set, this is a weird one. If I'm mixing someone's track, I like to do it like this. I'll mix to like 75%. Then I'll do like 80% of the master, go back and finish the mix and then tweak the master. So it's like, it's a bit of back and forth. It's a weird one. It's just my, my current approach that seems to be working really well for me right now. So it's kind of like uh, everything's kind of growing together. Because, you know, if you, if you finish the mix and you master it, but you find that there are a few things you want to change, you can go back to it and stuff. But I do like this back and forth. Yeah, it's, um, it's like yeah. one of those small, like time-saving um, processes that I put in place recently. Are there any go-to plugins besides those by mastering in the mix that you use on almost every mixing and mastering project? I'm simplifying it. I used to, you know, um, I love buying plugins. I love getting excited by plugins. They are exciting and they, they do help me be more creative. When I'm actually producing, I might use more, but when I'm mixing other people's projects, I might go for a more efficient approach. So Big fan of, of UAD, big fan of FabFilter, big fan of Plugin Alliance. Um, and those are kind of the big ones for me. Yeah, a, a, lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing can be done with an EQ and something like Pro-Q2 is so powerful that, yeah, so you can do lots. And if you want a bit of a more analog flavor, then UAD is great. But I try not to get too bogged down because that's one of those things, you know, if you're searching through, and all of my plugins are like, I've, I, only, I only show on Logic the ones that I know that I'm going to use. Otherwise, I just get rid of the rest of them because it's just cluttered. Like, I don't want to be sifting. For example, UAD have hundreds of plugins, and I've got about 15. So I can just open the UAD, and I see those 15 plugins that I always use, and yeah. As producers, we're always looking for new sounds and samples to help inspire our productions. I know I am, and that's why I love Lander. They have free downloads of royalty-free samples to help inspire your creations. They partnered with some of the top artists, including Jimmy Edgar, Dirty Projectors, Blue Hawaii, Panpot, and so many more. 
The best part is they're all free and all you need to do is create an account to start downloading samples today. Seriously, it's that easy. As soon as you create an account, you can start instantly downloading packs from some of the biggest artists in the music industry. You can then finish your creation by uploading it to Lander for mastering and even use Lander to release it to top streaming platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Tidal, and so many more. Get started by visiting Lander today at landr.com. Are there any reoccurring problems you hear in a lot of the mixes you get from producers that you think they might be able to easily overcome, they just might not know how? Well, the biggest one for me was was getting kind of the tonal balance wrong. So I would get a lot of mixes and it would be um, a serious lack of low end or way too much, again, for the mids and the highs. You know, that it's just... It's just a case of finding the right balance for, for these producers and they really struggle with it. And it's really clear why, because they don't have a, a good listening environment. And that's the biggest downfall. They've got all the tools, you know, and anyone can have a great EQ or a great synth, but tweaking it in the right way so it translates well everywhere is the, is the trickiest thing. And that is why we made reference. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how you use reference? Sure. So... Reference is effective because it allows you to pull in a reference track that's similar to the track that you're working on. It lets you level match for a really fair comparison. Just a quick tangent, if a song is even one decibel louder than its counterpart, then it will sound richer in the low end and like it has more clarity in the top end. So it's really important to, to level match for a fair comparison. So from that point, the display and reference will show you how the different frequencies compare. So there's a, as a, as a white level line in what's called the Trinity display at the bottom. And for example, if, you, if your reference track has more perceived low end, then the, then the level line will be a lot above the center line. So it gives you these visual cues to, to change the spectral balance of your mix to better match your reference tracks. And that's super helpful if you're in an environment where you know, your bass is hyped or your headphones have, you know, a really soft high end. So you end up dialing, dialing in loads. So it's all relative with reference, which is why it's so helpful. So it doesn't, it, you, you could use it in an environment that isn't so good acoustically. But having said that, we also have lots of high end uh, studios that will use this software just because it is very helpful in all environments. Absolutely. So then when it comes to the listening environment itself, this is something you and I briefly discussed before this episode, but it's a common question I get from producers. They come to me, they say, hey, I got the laptop, I got the software, I have a couple plugins, and now I have 250 or I have $500 to spend on music production stuff. How should I spend that? Should I get $500 monitors? Should I get these really nice headphones or this acoustic foam or this subwoofer? How would you advise that a producer spend that initial budget to set up an effective listening environment? The, I'm sure that many different engineers and producers or content creators would have a very different approach, but this is what I would do if I was in that situation, having experienced different um, setups and what works best for me. If I had 500 bucks, I would buy a pair of headphones for $200. I do a lot of research to find out which of the was, were the best pair for me. I would also buy Sonarworks Reference 4, which would help calibrate those headphones to give me the flattest curve. 
and I would buy a sub pack. Now a sub pack is something that goes in the back of your chair. I've got one here. My cat has absolutely ruined it, but it's there. It vibrates with the low frequencies of your audio. So if you haven't got speakers that can deliver solid low end plus great acoustic treatment, this is your best bet. This doesn't, it's not affected by the room acoustics or anything else. I take it with me whenever I go traveling anywhere or if I'm on the road, it's essential. So that would be, and and I would have reference, but I get that free because I made it. So I would have those, so those those are my four like on the road, don't even think about going going without without those things. Then the rest is like embellishment. If if that's how I would spend my first five hundred dollars. Interesting. That was that was a great answer. Um, I've actually never used a sub pack, so I'm assuming when you're mixing the low end, you just reference how the vibrations feel in comparison with another track. Yeah, exactly. So if, for example, yep, yeah, you you you, I would level match the tracks and I would feel how the sub because it's it's very linear. Um, so there is a really, really obvious representation of what's actually going on there. You can feel the punch, you can feel the sustain, all of those things that can get totally lost in a, in a, in a, in a room. So it's absolutely killer. And I would, I would go for the one that's the seat back because it has a greater surface area. So you get a, 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 like a, a more obvious representation of the sound. And it's, it's literally like $200, $300. That is, it's cheaper than most subwoofers and far more accurate. I think it's an industry changer, absolutely. Awesome. So as the maker of some of the most popular plugins in the music industry for measuring loudness, the, the loudness war is something that's been brought up on the podcast pretty frequently. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the loudness war and how it's changing with the emergence of platforms like Spotify that normalize the loudness of the tracks on the platform. I think that it's important for producers to be aware of how their music is being delivered to listeners. And the fact that it's being turned down so much comparatively to how people have been mastering music over the years, it's, you know, it, it's been mastered to maybe, let's say, uh, uh, around minus seven luffs during the loudness wars. And the effect of that is that it's so compressed and it, it sounds crunchy and it sounds distorted and the way that audio is being delivered now allows for a much more open and dynamic, less crunchy, more pristine, more clarity, you know, it's, and there's no reason why producers can't deliver their music like this and have their audience suffer because of it, you know, because they need to know that a punchier track that isn't distorted is going to be received better than one that is. So. So yeah, so that's why we made levels really and we kind of, we, it was set out to try and deliver the technical details in the most intuitive way and unintrusive to the creative process as well. So, you know, we have these different presets and we have these thresholds. They're, they're thresholds rather than targets. It's not like you have to try and hit. So Spotify uh, normalizes audio to around minus 14 LUFS integrated and it's not like you have to hit minus 14 bang on the money. That's, that's not really the case. You know, you've got to do what's right for, the, for, for your music. But it's just good to know whereabouts you are. So if, for example, you master a track to minus 11, Spotify is going to turn down your track by about three decibels. 
So it's still at minus 11, you probably won't have a smash track and it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be a huge problem. But if you're mastering to say minus three luffs and you get turned down by just like a crazy amount, not only will you have the kind of detrimental distortion sound that the limiting has added, but it's just, it's going to sound so weak and feeble compared to everything else. Mm-hmm. Artists like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Hero Bust, but he produces some of the loudest music I've heard on SoundCloud. And now artists like that, they're creating separate masters for each platform, you know, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because thing is, I mean, people still want to be heard in the club with like a, you know, you know, great, powerful sound. Often a DJ will just be able to increase the volume if they need to anyway, or they'll have some headroom to play with to match the levels. You know, their, their music collection isn't going to be a consistent level anyway. So... Obviously, they want to hit hard in the club, but I have seen a lot of house tracks as well kind of kind of come away from this super smash sound and go for this more dynamic uh, dynamic sound. Absolutely. Even, even I recently um, analysed One Kiss by Calvin Harris, and he I, I, I bought the track from iTunes, and I also analysed how it came through on YouTube, and they absolutely created a YouTube version for that to get the best result, and it's amazing to see a track that, one of the most successful tracks of this year, had taken on this kind of approach. So yeah, it's, it's happening and it's great. It's good for the listener. Yep, agreed. So I guess my last question for you as a mastering engineer is, do you think producers should master their own tracks or should they hire someone like yourself to master it for them? Really tough question because I master my own music. So it would be, you know, a bit rich coming from me to say you shouldn't. And I learn a lot about mastering from mastering my own music. I think it's really important that artists know as much as they possibly can about the entire process so that they can even um, at least have a good opinion or an informed opinion on what a mastering engineer has done or a mixing engineer. If they use these people, the more they know about the subject, the, you know, um, the greater authority they'll have over their own music to be able to direct it in the way they want. There are some things that will hold people back from being able to master their own music, such as you know their um, studio environment or their or their technical knowledge. But I think it would it's a, it's a good thing that they understand it as much as they possibly can. And I'm not totally against them mastering their own music either. <laughs> but if they do want it mastered, you're a great person to talk to. Well, you know, it's 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 not just me. There's just there's hunt there's thousands of online businesses of great mastering engineers out there. I think I think collaboration, however you do it, is crucial. I never I might master my own music, but my music always has input from others, whether it's a singer, a producer, an instrumentalist, a musician, a a manager or whatever, a label, there's always an opinion or a performance that makes my music better. And I think that that can be the same for anyone, regardless of where you are. If you're a producer, then maybe, you know, use a mastering engineer and they'll help you. I'm, loads of mastering engineers are so happy to kind of go back and forth and give you feedback and, and do what's right for your music. So yeah, it's collaboration is great. Yeah. As a, as a bedroom producer, it's so easy to stay locked behind closed doors, just working in your DAW, but the value of feedback on your music is so underrated. The value of collaboration is so underrated. 
and the relationships you build in the music industry can be one of the greatest assets that can really help propel you and your career forward. Absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. Well, if you're listening to the audio for this episode on SoundCloud, iTunes, I definitely recommend you check out the video portion. As you can tell, Tom is extremely knowledgeable when it comes to mixing and mastering tracks, so you're gonna be able to learn a lot when you see him mix and master the stems of a track from scratch using a number of plugins, including those by mastering the mix that are included in the contest I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. But other than that, Tom, thank you again for coming on the show. This was great. And to all the viewers and listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next time on the Sound.Academy podcast.